All right, turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles back to Revelation chapter 11 in an effort to streamline the length of my message. We're only going to look at one verse this morning. <laughs> so if that makes you feel better. And I promise Mark and I did not in any way, um, in any way, sure, thank you. We did not in any way coordinate in advance. Um, I've told you guys many, many times, and it still blows me away. Thanks, brother. The overlap between our Bible study and our message is amazing to me, and how the Lord superintends that. All right, Revelation chapter 11, just to give a quick overview of where we are. So we are between the sixth and seventh trumpets. We started on the trumpets in March. So we are now nine or ten uh, messages into the uh, the trumpets. So picture number one that we looked at as we started in this interlude. There's this period of time between the sixth and the seventh trumpet that is a, a break, if you will. We're calling it an interlude. In Revelation 10, John is given the word by the mighty angel to take and eat. That's Revelation 10.10. And it says, I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. We'll look this morning at what that prophecy looks like, what it means. But in the original Greek here, it means to speak forth, um, to prophesize, to be empowered by God, to declare his mind. Well, there's, there is some conjecture that prophesying is declaring our own minds. That's not what it is. We looked at Elijah this morning, and Elijah was not declaring his own agenda, was he? So that's picture one. So God gives through the angel to John a picture of his word. John is to take and eat it. That means he's to take it for himself. It must first be applicable to him. Then he is to take it. Then picture number two, and we spent a little bit of time on this. This is in Revelation chapter 11, verses one and two, where John is told to rise and measure. He was given a measuring rod like a staff and was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. We looked at the first two verses here and John is told to rise and measure the temple. And the picture of this is the dwelling place of God, which is what? This was last week, so somebody should remember. Symbolic of? I'm going to have to go back and do first verses one and two again. No, it's a picture of the bride. It's a picture of the church. And the picture of the Holy of Holies that we looked at last week is that God is delighted to fellowship with his people. It delights God to fellowship with his people. And he accomplishes this with the indwelling and the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. 
We are reminded, and we looked at this in detail last week, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and that we are set apart. We talked about holiness last week. What is holiness? It is the apartedness. When we talk about the holiness of God, it's the otherness of God, the unlike anything else-ness of God. And God says, you are to be holy as I am holy. So John is told to rise and measure, number, if you will, the temple of God, reminding us that God has numbered his people. He knows them that are his. There's this picture also of the 42 months, and now we shift to another scene, but there's a continuation, and I want you to see this. When when you read this at first, the first thought is it's a completely different picture. I'm changing gears. We're moving on to something else. That's not what's happening here. The amazing thing about what we're looking at is God is giving us different pictures or snapshots of the same thing. So same thing from a different angle. Which brings us to this question. The two witnesses. And you're like, Danny, it took you six weeks to finally get around to it. I promise we will talk about that this morning. Here's the third picture in the interlude at verse, beginning verse three. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1260 days. Now, the 1260 days is the same as 42 months. It's mentioned in the last picture. So what is scripture doing for us here? It's just tying these together so that we understand we're talking about the same thing. Same period of time, 42 42 months is the same as 1260 days. And he says, they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Now, we studied lampstands way back in the very beginning. We're not going to talk about lampstands today, but needless to say, um, we've, we've touched on that before, but he says the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Does that sound familiar? Second mm-hmm. Kings chapter one. If anyone would harm them, now he is doomed to be killed. They have power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophecy. Three years. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood. What are we talking about here? The idols of Egypt and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now, when you immediately read this, it's connecting dots for us, right? If you were to, uh, and there's a ton of conjecture out there, lots of different takes from different commentaries on what the two witnesses are. Some say it's, uh, and if you go on, if you go and use the Google machine and, and you do an image search, you'll see these fire-breathing dragons from these two men clothed in robes, kind of like the picture of Elijah this morning, breathing fire out. Remember, this is symbolism here. This is literal truth conveyed by parable. It's pictures to convey truth. Now, they, there are clues here that are very clear. Who commanded fire to come down from heaven? It's an easy answer because we just studied this this morning, mm-hmm. right? Who commanded water to be turned into blood? Again, an easy answer. 
So what are these, what is the picture here? What does this represent? How do we interpret scripture if we're to do it well? We interpret scripture with scripture. And as I said, there's a ton of conjecture and we can start guessing. And there are lots of people that say God is going to raise Elijah and Moses back up and they will in the future take a, a resurrected stand physically on the earth. But I think we're missing the point. We go there and I'll explain why. Well, first of all, verse three begins by saying, I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy. We read this in the original Greek. It says, I will give to my two witnesses that they may prophesy. That's how it reads in the original Greek. I will grant we're going to have our, our men's Bible study this afternoon. We're studying grace. This is a picture of God empowering his witnesses with grace. I will grant or I will give them so that they may prophesy. Then he gives us the word to. And if we pronounce it, and this is the word, this is where we get the word duo. So the title of my message this morning, a bit tongue in cheek, but it's the dynamic duo. And that's as far as we'll reference Marvel Comics or whatever. Is it Marvel or? DC. See, you knew. <laughs> I did not. The word witness is there in the Greek means martus. Where do we get that word? Or what does that translate to? It's a word we're very familiar with. Martyr. I will give my two witnesses that they may prophesy. Well, the first thing we need to understand is that the number of the witnesses speaks to the purpose of the witnesses. Why two? Why two? Well, as we've learned in our study in the book of Revelation, it constantly takes us where? Back to the Old Testament. What is significant about the mention of two witnesses in Scripture? By the way, if you have faults with your brother, you are to go to him or her. And if he or she does not hear you, what? Two witnesses. Two witnesses. Why? So the matter may be established. Look in Deuteronomy chapter 17, or I can just read it to you. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. What's the picture here? Well, we get a little bit of a cheat because we studied 1 Kings or 2 Kings chapter 1 this morning. What is God doing here? He is establishing charges against the earth dweller. And those charges bring with it a death sentence. You say, well, 
That's harsh. That's mean. There was uh, much to do this week about the passing of a law in Uganda. Maybe you heard about it. Um, it had the Twitterverse all a flutter, and lots of people came out. We're talking about it. Men like um, Ted Cruz, Russell Moore, several people came out in absolute um, horror over the passage of the law. The passage of the law was um, dealing with aggravated homosexuality, which brought with it a death sentence. And with that, you do a little digging there. It's, it is nothing short of forced relations with someone who has HIV, which brings with it what? Murder, death. So here's a death sentence for those who are deliberately infecting people. And I was thinking about that, and there were lots of Christians talking about this. And most came out, and, and then then the, the progressives on the other side of the conversation started talking about, well, look at your Old Testament. And the answer is yes, let's look at our Old Testament. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his image. Why did God institute the death penalty for murder? Because man is created in the image of God and has innate value. Murder is an attempted assault on God because man is created in the image of God. Do you ever find it interesting in John 8, 44, Jesus calls Satan a murderer? And in John 8, 44, talking to the Pharisees, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. Well, who did Satan murder? Satan tried to murder God. And how did he do that? He went after Adam and Eve. From the beginning, he tried to assault God. When we murder someone, we are going after the image Deo, the image of God. So here's the question, and we can debate where capital punishment fits in a civilized society another time, but here's the question I want to ask you this morning. Why did God institute the death penalty for 16 forms of sin? What was one form of sin that we looked at this morning? Idolatry. Idolatry. Why? What was he teaching? His holiness. His holiness. He was teaching Israel that he is holy and that sin is what? Deadly. Sin kills. And in our public debate, we can't see the forest for the trees, but here are the, here are the uh, crimes that come with it, capital punishment in the nation of Israel under their civil law. First degree murder, premeditated murder, kidnapping, striking or cursing of one's parents, presumptuous rebellion, sacrifice to false gods or idolatry. We looked at that this morning. Here's an interesting one, violating the Sabbath. 
whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You say, well, is that harsh? What is Jesus or what is God teaching Israel about the Sabbath by saying, if you violate the Sabbath, you will be put to death? Why such a harsh penalty? Well, the answer is this, to rest in your own labor instead of the Sabbath is deadly. Who is the Sabbath? Christ. What is, G- what is the Lord communicating to the people of Israel? If you don't rest in my Sabbath, you're going to die. Very clear picture here. Blasphemy, being a false prophet, human sacrifice, divination. There we go. That was another one. Um, adultery. What would happen if our, in our culture if everyone who committed adultery, we'd have a lot of widows and widow widowers running around. Bestiality, incest, homosexuality, premarital sex, rape. These were all sins that brought with them the death penalty. And at the onset, you would look at that and say, this is harsh. Our culture would push back against that and say, this is where we unhitch from the Old Testament, right? Because that God is not the God of the New Testament. By the way, yes, he is. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is the mind of God. What is God communicating to the nation of Israel? Sin is deadly. What is sin? Sin is the transgression of the law. Paul says in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is what? But the gift, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The death penalty was instituted early. Genesis chapter 2. What did God tell Adam and Eve? With the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for what happens. You shall surely die. Breaking God's law, disobedience to God's law, brings with it the death penalty. Unless you say it's harsh, think about what we're saying when we say that. I don't understand God's holiness, and I don't understand the magnitude of my offensiveness to God. That's what we're saying. So God is doing something very important with this picture of the two witnesses. He is declaring his mind to the world. These witnesses are declaring what they have seen and heard themselves in the unbelieving world is without excuses. Between the witness of creation and the prominence of the conscience that gives witness to God's law and the testifying of the prophesying church, there is a mountain of evidence against those who will not believe. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known of God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, are clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So what? They are without excuse. The establishment of two witnesses here is incredibly important. God is demonstrating to the world that I have given you all the truth that you could possibly need. 
And in the heavenly court, you are convicted. And I have every witness against you to convict you. He says, I will grant to these witnesses. What what does he give to these two witnesses? Authority. Mm -hmm. Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. I want to take you to the last conversation that the Lord Jesus has with his disciples. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. Listen to this. But you will receive power. In the Greek, it means dunamai, force, um, specifically miraculous power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So God says, Jesus says before his departure to the disciples, you're going to receive miraculous power. Now, what is a miracle? When we talk about miraculous power, what are we talking about? We, we use the term miracle slightly or lightly, I should say. We talk about the fact that having a baby is a miracle. And it, it's an amazing thing. And it's a blessing from God. Children are a heritage from the Lord. They are gifts. But are babies miracles? In the truest sense of the definition, a miracle is God accomplishing his will outside of the use of ordinary means or what we would call natural law. For example, when God told Moses, take your take your staff and strike the sea and the sea stacks up. What natural laws are being defied there? Gravity. Gravity. He's overriding gravity. When the angel comes to to Mary and says, you're going to have a child, and Mary says, I'm a virgin, how is this possible? And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. For behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who is also called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. So what is a miracle? A miracle is God directly working, not through ordinary means. We talk about secondary means or secondary causes, but God specifically working with his hand of power so that there is no doubt. We looked at such a scenario this morning in Second Kings chapter 1. When the 50 servants of the king came to get Elijah, what happened? Whoa, it's just a lightning strike. No. Fire rained down from heaven. And then to validate that was not just a freak accident of nature. What happened? Did it again. You know, the old adage about lightning striking twice. It was far more than lightning. God set aside the laws of nature to directly intervene. So why the use of miracles? And when Jesus tells his disciples, 
you will have miraculous power. Why? Why? Exodus chapter 4, when Moses is in the wilderness tending the flock and God appears to him in a burning bush, and God commissions Moses and said, I'm sending you, Moses, to Pharaoh. You are going to extract my people from Egypt. You remember what Moses said in Exodus chapter 4? He says, behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Moses is looking at natural law, isn't he? Lord, I can't see you. You're a spirit. How is Pharaoh going to possibly believe that you are who you say you are when you're a spirit and I can't see you? The Lord said to him, what is in your hand? And he said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. What did Moses do? He ran from it. And the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. Not good snake handling practice. <laughs> so he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. Listen to verse five of Exodus four. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Why did God give Moses miraculous power? To validate that he was, in fact, who he claimed to be. What did Elijah say when the 50 servants came to him? If I am the prophet of God, what? Fire will come down from heaven. Guess what? Elijah was the prophet of God. Elijah didn't make fire come down from heaven. That wasn't his power. But what we see is the validation of the message. So when Elijah sends word to the king, you are going to die. Should the king believe him? Yeah. Moses' second objection to the Lord is, Lord, I, I can't talk. I'm not good with words. You can make a staff into a snake, but you can't help me speak eloquently. I'm just not good with words. And what does the Lord tell him? Yes. Yes. And, and he goes further. And this is how the Lord condescends, even in Moses's weakness. What does he say to him? Moses, I'm going to help you. I'm going to send your brother who your brother, brother's good with words, as if I need that. But you know what he does? Look at what he does. In verse 15 of Exodus 4, and you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, this is Aaron, and I will be with your mouth and I will be with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. How many people go to Pharaoh? What is God doing there? Mm -hmm. Guilty, Pharaoh. You are guilty. The mouth of two witnesses. It's a matter to be established. So back to... Acts chapter 1, when God tells the disciples that he is going to give them power, he's going to give them authority. In Matthew chapter 1, talked about demons this morning at Sunday school. Matthew 10, 1, and he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority. Authority is the possession of and the right to use power. We see this exemplified with our teenage drivers, if I give Cameron or Maddie 
the key to the car, they have the right, the authority to exercise that power or Michaela. Now, it's completely different as to whether that's a wise attribution of power to said teenagers, but but beside the point, they have it. And Jesus gives to his disciples authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Luke 10, 19, he says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus talking to Peter, and Jesus is asking his disciples, What's what's the word on the street regarding who I am? And his disciples respond, say, saying in verse 14 of Matthew 16, some say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah and one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter said, you are Christ, the son of the living God. See, there is a huge difference between recognizing Jesus as a prophet. Jesus is not to be imitated in his faith alone. Jesus is the object of faith. When you talk to a liberal or progressive, they will often talk about the fact that that Jesus is an example to be emulated. He was a prophet. He was a teacher. He's far more than that. Yes, that's true. But he's the son of God. He is God in the flesh. And he says to Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I will tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Look at verse 19. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, there's lots of debate on that passage about what are the keys to the kingdom and what authority he's giving to Peter. But it's very clear to me as I study this, he is giving his authority to his church. Okay? Peter, the apostle, being essentially a founder as one of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he talks about binding and loosing. And this is referring to church discipline and the authority that Christ vests in his church. God has told his church that they're to exercise authority. Luke chapter 10, listen, look at this. Luke chapter 10, verse 1, after this, the Lord appointed 72, wasn't just the original 12, but here are 72 others, and it says he sent them out ahead of him. How many did he send? How many did he send at a time? Two by two. Into every town and place where he himself was about to go, and he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, But the laborers are few, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. 
And if the son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Look at verse 9. Heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. That's a curious statement, isn't it? Jesus tells the 72, when you're, when you're in a house and you are ministering to them, tell them the kingdom is here. Hmm. Verse 12, I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of Sodom than for that town. Um, I'm sorry, verse 10. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Listen to this. Nevertheless, know this. You're telling this to them that the kingdom of God has come near. So what, what Jesus is telling the 72 is put the kingdom in front of them. They will either submit to it or they will reject it. But either way, you're putting the kingdom in front of them. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. And what is that? We are to obey the king. We talked a lot about kings this morning. The Old Testament is full of bad kings. It's only one good king. Even David failed. Mm -hmm. Solomon failed. But look at what he says in verse 16. Jesus talking to the 72. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. The one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. What is Jesus doing for his people, his disciples? He is empowering them to go speak for him. You're starting to see the picture of the two witnesses here, maybe just a little bit. The lineage of the kings in Israel and Judah, due to their sinful nature and corruption, were bad. And they taught us how dangerous authority can be when it's misused and abused. All true authority, if it is to be exercised rightly, must be exercised in subjection to the one who grants that authority. What does that mean? As a, as a father who exercises authority, if, if I am not in subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm not fathering well. Amen. As a husband, if I am not subjected to the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm not leading my wife well. As an elder, if I am not subject, subjected as an under-shepherd to the shepherd, then I abuse my authority. Amen. But God has endowed his church with authority that must be exercised. Exercised. That's why it tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 regarding the position of an elder. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church of God? What is he saying? If you can't exercise authority in, in a smaller role, a lesser role, how can you be in authority in the church? Paul tells Titus in Titus chapter 2, verse 15, declare these things, 
meaning the word of God, exhort and rebuke with all authority. That's why stepping into the pulpit to teach and to preach is taking on a role of authority. Why? Because God has endowed the church with his authority. Now, that can be exercised, exercised rightly, and it can be exercised wrongly. If I get in the pulpit and I tell you something that is erroneous, contradictory to God's word, should you listen to me? Really? No. That was the right answer. No. No. If, if, if those that are in authority contradict God's word, what are we to do? The authorities told the, the apostles, don't preach. We'll throw you in prison if you preach. And if you preach, we're going to beat you and hurt you. And don't do it. And what did they say? Got to preach. Why do I have to preach? Because God said. There is the umbrella of authority over which God is supreme. If government, if the church, if the home is not subjected to Christ, then they must be disobeyed. That's not very popular because we look at Romans 13 and everybody says, well, the government says we must do it. No. If the government is telling you to do that which conforms to God's commands, yes, we obey happily. The problem for the Christian is when the government contradicts God's commands, isn't it? That's where tension comes for us. Because if the government comes in and says, you can't meet for church on Sunday. What do we do? Well, there are a lot of people that just packed up and left. Oh, Romans 13. But the next thing is when the government tells you you can't preach, you cannot declare the gospel, then what do I do? Well, Lord, Romans 13. No, we must obey God. And it goes for, we talk about our children. What exasperates our children? When we... When we inappropriately exercise our authority, that's what exasperates our children. Our exercising of authority has to be in conformity and subjection to the giver of authority. But he says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. We're not to step into the pulpit and say, well, I think we should do this. No. Why? God has given the church authority. And what do we do with that? The answer is, thus says the Lord. We don't talk like that. That's KGV talk. But thus says the Lord. Do what he says. And Jesus fully understood that there were going to be some that said, I don't want to be in your kingdom. That doesn't mean the the Lord Jesus is any less Lord, is he? The more I study, look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. It says, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brother has been cast down and who accused them day and night before the Lord. Uh, the more I study, the more I'm millennial I get, and I'm being up front with you. God has endowed his church with authority to exercise when? 
There would be some that say, well, it's future. When did Jesus give his disciples authority? When? Well, that's that's for another period of time out. No. And what did he give them authority to do? That's the important question. It's not to do cool stuff, magic tricks, because we got all this power. No, he empowered his church for a very specific reason. What was it? To be witnesses to me. So when did he empower the church? The answer is what we read in Acts chapter 1. You will be my witnesses. And what does that mean? You will declare what you've seen and heard. That was the last thing Jesus said when he ascended. Do you think that was important? Yeah. Verse 3, second half. We'll do the second half of the verse. They will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. The word prophecy there from the Greek, prophet uo, is to speak the mind of God. Now, in some applications, it is to speak the future. We looked at Elijah this morning, and what did Elijah say to the king? King, you are going to die. So he's foretelling the future in that regard. But what do what do I take from that when the canon of Scripture is complete? There are those that say, well, I keep on prophesying. I had this guy tell me once when I was a teenager, I, maybe I looked like I wanted a pickup truck, but he comes up to me and says, God's going to give you a red pickup truck. I'm like, red? Really? He called and he walked around calling himself a prophet. Now, in the, the process of time, I had a brown one. But that's not what the church is empowered to do, guys. It's not. The church is empowered and tasked with a very simple thing, a very simple mission, and that is to declare the mind of God. Thus says the Lord. The early church and the disciples both witnessed and performed miracles. They saw Jesus. But what were they testifying to? They saw the risen Christ. And they all died not recanting because they knew they were firsthand witnesses that Jesus was, in fact, resurrected. They saw him die. They saw him be buried. And they saw him after the resurrection. And when he appeared to the twelve. And Thomas says, Lord, how do I know it's you? Look at my hands. So what about us? How does this apply to us? Say, well, has God called us to perform miracles? And am I any less of a Christian if I'm not performing miracles? What did God give the disciples, the apostles, miracles for? What did he do that for? To confirm the message. Is the scripture complete this morning? Do we need to add anything else to this? What does that tell us? This is confirmed. This is validated. This is believable. This has been witnessed to. 
say, well, they saw Jesus. They were firsthand witnesses of the Lord Jesus. My question to you is, what have you seen? Mm -hmm. You say, well, I haven't seen him in person. What did Jesus tell Thomas? Blessed are those who believe when they haven't seen me. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I promise I'm almost done. Bear with me. Almost there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This goes to the question of what have I seen? What am I to witness to? The canon of scripture is complete. Now what? My question to you is, have you witnessed a miracle? Personally, firsthand. Second Corinthians chapter 5 answers that question. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what? He is a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What does that mean? If any man is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The word creation or creature there is from the word katissis. It means created from nothing. We use the term in the Latin ex nihilo, out of nothing. Mm-hmm. When we say God created the world, we say God created the world ex nihilo, out of nothing. Well, he didn't take an ingredient from here, an ingredient from there, put them all together. There's the earth. No, this is the problem with liberal liberal Christianity, by the way, is there's no room for the supernatural. It has to be explained away. So The church in mass is compromising with this error by saying, well, creation and evolution can mix. They can be buddies. What you're really saying is God does not have the power to create something out of nothing. So what are you witnessing to? What are you testifying to? Because if you are a child of God, you were created out of nothing. That's what Paul is telling the Corinthians here. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation out of nothing. What is he referring to? You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and God gave you life. We call that regeneration. God giving life to a dead person spiritually so that they may see, believe, be converted. This is the same power that resurrected Jesus. Do you see what's going on here? You say, well, I don't have anything to to, to witness to. Yes, you do. If you are a child of God and you have been born again by the Holy Spirit who resides in you, you have lots to witness to. You have lots to testify to. If If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. How could it be from anywhere else? A dead man cannot give himself or herself life. Doesn't happen. You can't give yourself a heart transplant. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Listen to this and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. See, see what Paul's doing there? He's, he's giving you the basis for which you are to go and reconcile sinners. You are a witness, ex nihilo, to what God did for you. He created spiritual life in you where you were barren and dead. But with God, all things are possible. He gave you, created in your life, if you were a child of God, a miracle. The same resurrecting power that the disciples witnessed, we witness. My point to that is we have something to say, don't we? He continues, therefore, He's given to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors. What does the word ambassador mean? Presbio in the Greek. Say that 10 times fast. It is to be given the status of a statesman, a diplomat, a trusted, respected ambassador who is authorized to speak as God's emissary. And represents his kingdom. That's what an ambassador for Christ is. You are a representative of his kingdom. Well, wait a minute. I thought the kingdom was in the future. And sometimes we act like that, don't we? Because we don't want to be ambassadors. We are representatives of the kingdom of God, and he has authorized us to speak on his behalf. Wait a minute. What about judge not? God's already judged. That's the two witnesses here. What what is the message of the church? God says, if you do not repent, you are under a death sentence. Is that popular? Is anybody going to want to hear that? Well, we'll see next week what happens with the two witnesses because of their message. Thus says the Lord, you're going to die. You want to make friends and influence people? What about being winsome? You remember what Jesus said to the people that came to him and said, the Tower of Siloam fell on some. Were they worse people than others because they died in an accident? You remember what Jesus said? Unless you repent. The same thing will happen to you. Humanity is under a death sentence because of why? Because of sin. The message of the church is to declare, thus says the Lord, sin kills. There's a remedy. We're given the the message of reconciliation. And lastly, he says, the, the, the witnesses are clothed in sackcloth. This is the present posture, excuse me, of the bride. Now, what is sackcloth for? Repentance. Yes, it's a a picture of mourning. We don't wear sackcloth these days, so it's an unfamiliar term. But sackcloth was used as a sign of mourning. In Matthew chapter 9, the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, "Why why don't your disciples fast, Jesus? John the Baptist's disciples fast. We fast. Why don't your disciples fast? Remember what Jesus said to them? Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said in Matthew 9, 15, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? 
That's a powerful statement. There's a lot in that. But can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. When was the bridegroom taken away? When? When he ascended. Now, Jesus says, you're not going to be alone because I'm giving you the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. You're not alone. That's what we looked at last week. Spirit of God resides in his church inside of us. So we're not alone. But Jesus says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Brings up an interesting conversation on fasting, but for another time, I want to read Romans 8.22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains, in the pains of childbirth and until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who are the first fruits of his spirit groan inwardly. What does it mean when it's talking about we groan? The idea of, is sighing. You ever talking to somebody? <laughs> what is that communicating? <laughs> that they don't want to be talking to you, obviously. But no, what? What are they, what are they communicating? Enough already. I hear some of you sighing right now. <laughs> the idea of sighing is tired, I'm tired of waiting. Paul says, we have the first fruits of the spirit. We groan inwardly. The scripture talks about the same example when, when Hebrews calls Lot righteous. You, know, you read the account in Genesis and you think Lot was a bad father. But scripture counts him as righteous. Why? Because the scripture says he was vexed every day because of the culture in which he lived. Another way of saying he groaned inwardly. Well, why did he groan? Why do we groan? Waiting eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are now saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for one who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait with patience. In closing, I want to share this prayer of Daniel, who is an ambassador of God to Babylon. And he's praying for Israel. The picture, by the way, of the bride in sackcloth is what? She's waiting and preparing for the bridegroom. The stance, the posture of the church until the Lord Jesus comes back to get her and redemption is complete, is that she's waiting expectantly, but she's not, she's not fulfilled. Redemption is not complete. You say, well, is, is the work of the Lord Jesus not done? Yes. The scripture says we're seating in the heaven, we're seated in the heavenlies, but we're in the, we're in the here and not yet tension. Our redemption is not complete. Someday you're going to throw that thing away, brother. Amen. Because your redemption will be complete. Listen to what Daniel prays. And in Daniel chapter 8, and verse 27, Daniel is given the vision of the beast. And you remember what that vision was? We've read it a couple times in our study in Revelation. Daniel becomes overwhelmed and lays sick for some days. The message that he got from the angel was that, that the beast was going to wear out God's people. 
He was going to trample on God's people. And this disturbed Daniel greatly. And Daniel's response to the vision of the beasts and the trouncing of God's people is in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. He says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the number of the years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Listen to what Daniel does. Now, Daniel is in exile in Babylon. He is a young man, probably his late teens. We talked about who we turn to when we are in serious trouble. Verse 3 of Daniel chapter 9, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy. Listen, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Can you imagine the church praying this for our country right now? To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. Who is who is Daniel blaming for the captivity? Yes, Lord, you, you let this happen to us, right? No. To us, Lord, verse 8, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out upon us. What was that curse? If you obey, Blessing, life. If you disobey, death, cursing. He says, because we have sinned against him. Verse 12, he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. You know when people are serious? You know when people are serious about repentance? When they turn to God and cry out to him. The nation of Israel was in was in, in bondage to Babylon. And look at what he says. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God. What does that tell you? They're perfectly content being in exile in Babylon. Why? They were fine with the idols. When we talk about those who would not bow the knee, there were four. 
Where was the rest of the nation of Israel going along to get along? We have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. And we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at, as at this day, we have sinned and we have done wickedly. Daniel is giving us the template for what we should be doing as the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ is waiting for his return. What is Daniel doing? He's in sackcloth and ashes waiting for deliverance. It's, it's a picture of what the church of the Lord Jesus Christ should be doing right now. The picture of sackcloth is humility. It's easy as a Christian to point the finger at the rest of the world and saying what they're doing is wrong, wrong, wrong. And we could be absolutely right in saying that. But what is Daniel saying? What is the template that Daniel is giving to the believer? Judgment begins in the house of God. The effective witness of the church comes when she is in, act, in, in sackcloth and acknowledges and recognizing her own sinfulness. Then we can be ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ. What does Spurgeon say? Preaching and the sharing of the gospel is it's one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. That's the effective power of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we should be doing. When was the last time we prayed like that? So what is the application as we close? Well, first of all, the two witnesses are the prophesying bride of Christ, who is warning the world that the bridegroom is coming. In Matthew chapter 22, we see a good example of that, and I'll not read it all. But there is compelling the guests to come into the wedding feast. And there is a condition. There must be a white robe worn, a wedding garment, if you will, which is what? The righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church compels the sinner to come to the wedding feast. But none of this just as you are. You can't stay as you are. Why? You must have the righteousness of Christ. This is what's offensive. And we'll find out what happens when the world is offended by the church next week as we continue to look at this. The message is either offensive or embraced, one of the two, but it's not a riding of the fence. Secondly, God has granted the church, that is his bride, the power and the authority, the keys of the kingdom, if you will, through his regenerating and indwelling spirit to faithfully proclaim the mind of God. The world wants you to shut up. And it's interesting that we, we get shut up by Scripture itself. Judge not. More than a cursory reading of that, if we study it, we are to understand that before we can judge righteously, we have to what? Remove the beam that is in our own eye so that we're not being hypocritical. Thirdly, this dynamic duo the prophetic declaration is to warn the earth dweller, and we've talked about the earth dweller extensively, of their capital offense. 
and proclaim the Lamb, to exercise a ministry of reconciliation, to witness what we have both seen and heard. We are to warn the world that they are under the judgment of God. How do you do that nicely? It's, it's telling them the truth from a perspective that you have been in their position. And but for the grace of God, you'd still be in their position. But to tell the truth, we must. You said, well, it's not loving if you tell me that if I die in my sin, I'm going to hell. It is the most loving thing that we can tell someone. There can't be a cure for the disease if the doctor is refused. Fourthly, the prophetic message of the church is the simple declaration of the mind of God, not miracles. There are people that are looking everywhere for a miracle. I want an experience. Give me something extra. Give me something special. God has ordained that he works in the ordinary means of the church. We're going to come to the Lord's table in just a minute. Is that meaningless? Is taking the Lord's Supper meaningless? Or has God committed to using that for our growth? Well, if it was meaningless, we wouldn't do it. Lastly, for now, the bride mourns. She groans. She re- she's repenting and preparing and longs for home while waiting for the bridegroom which is our completed redemption. Let's be dismissed in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for your word. Lord, we confess that if not for your grace, we would be terrified and fearful to do what you've called us to do. But Lord, you have called us to be ambassadors for your kingdom. And you have also told us that you have given us everything we need to do it. We ask that you would... Grant us the grace that we need, Lord, to be bold in our jobs, school, wherever it is that you have put us in home. Lord, that we would um, tell your truth without shame and with boldness. We ask that you would encourage us this morning, build us with your word, feed your sheep. Father, if there are any here that do not know you, would you do what only you can do and give them life? They may may have eyes to see and ears to hear and trust you that you would take away their death sentence. We ask these things in your name. Amen.